I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 18 this morning. Before we begin, I do want to say thank you to Pastor Richard and Doug who uh, filled the pulpit respectively while, while I was away. And I say that not so much to exalt them, though uh, I am certainly thankful for the, the good work they did, but I'm also thankful that God has raised up within our midst men who love the Word, men who are able to handle the Word, to teach it in a way that is profitable to others, so that whether I am here or whether I'm away, I know that this congregation will be well served by the one who stands behind this sacred desk. Now this morning we want to make our return to the Gospel of Luke exactly where we left off three weeks ago, picking up Luke's message towards the middle of chapter 18. And as we begin this morning, I know that some of you have been with us for a long time, some of you have not been with us for a long time, and so as we kind of re-enter the Gospel of Luke, I want us to, to just pause and either remember or hear for the first time why Luke wrote originally this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what a gospel is. That's what the gospel is, after all. We have four of them at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just as Doug reminded us last week, there's only one true gospel message, so we need to understand that these four gospels do not stand in contradiction to each other. Thank you. But rather, these four Gospels complement each other as each of the four authors presented the same message but with different emphases, different perspectives on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ because they were writing to different kinds of audiences. And if you remember way back to our very first sermon on Luke's Gospel, we saw that Luke specifically was writing to a Gentile audience, people who had not grown up in the, in the context of Judaism at the temple or with the Jewish scriptures. Even more specifically, he's writing to a, a, uh, probably a, a political figure named Theophilus, and he's wanting to assure him that the things that he had heard and believed were in fact true. He wants to assure him that Jesus Christ did in fact come as the fulfillment of all of God's plan to bring salvation to sinners. And he wants to assure him that the salvation that was secured through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is available not just to the Jews, but to all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, is available to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Luke began his account of the gospel by showing us the context of Christ coming into this world, the eternal God taking on flesh, being born as a baby. He showed us Jesus growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He showed us Jesus beginning his ministry empowered by God's Spirit, preaching about the kingdom of God. From there, Luke recounted many of the teachings and miracles that Jesus did, even as he showed us Jesus calling to himself disciples and giving them authority that they might also go out and heal and to preach the good news of salvation from God. And we saw that in chapter 9 there was a turning point that came when Jesus, we are told, set his face toward Jerusalem. That is, he understands the time has come that now he begins to start moving towards the climax of his ministry, namely the cross where he will die for sinners. 
Most recently, just previous to this in chapter 18, we saw Jesus giving us two examples, one to avoid, one to embrace, telling us about the nature of that salvation work that he's going to earn on the cross. He showed us a Pharisee who believed he could be justified, he could be made right with God because of the good works of his life. Good works that God had had generated in him by his grace, but nevertheless were his works of righteousness. That was the bad example, not to follow, not to imitate. Instead, we should look to the tax collector, the sinner who knew he could not be justified by his own work, but instead called out for God's mercy in order to be saved. Now, I remind you of that because there Jesus is showing us what it means to be a disciple of his, how we come to be his disciple. It's not by being, uh, by resting in what we have done, but by looking to what Christ himself has done for us. And it's in that context of discipleship that we also see our verses this morning. So beginning at verse 15, follow along as I read what Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, says to us even today. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, that is, Jesus. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. At first glance, these verses might seem pretty straightforward to us. Certainly, application seems clear from what Jesus teaches here, both in his words and his example. However, what may not immediately become obvious to us is that the reality of the gospel message, the message of salvation, is in fact embedded in these verses. It is the the reason that Jesus responds the way he does to the children in front of him. These children provide a picture of the gospel that should not only affect our understanding of how we come to God, but be the basis by which we respond to children the way that Jesus does here in these verses. So this morning, what I want us to do is see Christ, his attitude, his actions as something that we should imitate. And then I want to to show us why we should imitate him. Why is it that we should have a focus on children and be receiving of them? And I want to do all of that through three statements of application, three responses that I think are necessitated by these verses in front of us. First, We need to understand that we should bless children with Christ's presence. We should bless children with Christ's presence. Luke says they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Now notice a few things just about this short sentence. First of all, Luke uses a verbal tense here that is not... It's there in English, but because we often have poor grammar, uh, it may not be all that obvious to us. But he doesn't say what he often says. Luke will often say, on one occasion, or at that time. Instead, notice it's an ongoing thing. They were bringing. It's not that they brought. It's that this is something that, that people were doing all the time. They were continually bringing their children, even infants, to Jesus that he might touch them. The question is, what? why are they doing that? And again, here we have to remember the cultural context. It's not that maybe the Gentiles never did this, but almost surely this is Jesus' own people, Jewish parents or other relatives, bringing their children to him that he might touch them. Why? What was so important about that touch? 
Well, the Jews had a cultural history of older elder men in society speaking a blessing on those who were younger, often physically touching them on the head or when uh, it was a large group, maybe you've seen this before, raising their hand up, signifying a touch on them, though that was not practical at one time. So for example, we think of Genesis chapter 48, where we see an ailing Jacob who placed his hands on the heads of Joseph's sons, Jacob's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And of course, that's a great gospel passage because we have the older who should receive the the, the blessing of the older child and you have the younger. And instead, uh, Jacob switches his hands and they get upset and say, no, 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 you put your hands on the wrong one. And he says, listen, I'm old and about ready to die, but I know what I'm doing. Doing here. The younger is going to serve, or the older is going to serve the younger. The younger will be the one through whom the blessing comes. But there was also a tradition at Jesus' day of the parents bringing the child not just for circumcision on the eighth day, but to have male and female have the child blessed by the high priest on the day of atonement. That they would put their hands on them and speak a word of blessing upon them. Perhaps even the blessing that God instructed the priest in number six to give on the people the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. My point is in the culture of Israel, there was this, there was this tradition, there was this normalcy of an older godly man placing his hands on a child or on anyone really and issuing a blessing. And so when people began to see in Jesus one sent from God, one wise and loving and righteous, they say, that's the guy I want praying for my children. I mean, that's really what a blessing is. It, 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 is, it, is, not, it is not someone imparting something as much it is, as it is in the biblical sense, a prayer that God would be the one who actually shows favor to another. So, at the end of the service, when I offer a benediction, or if you ever get an email from me, and sometimes my, uh, my, uh, my, my end greeting is blessings, John, you understand that what that is signifying is a prayer for you, that God is to be at work in your life. And so also in this passage, here are these adults bringing children, even babies, to Jesus that he might put his hand on them and bless them. Pray God's grace and mercy and favor on them. And as we think about that, we have to ask, do we have the same mindset as these parents, as these family members in this text? Do we, ha- do we have within us the, the desire, the understanding that of all the people of all the people that we should bring our children to, Christ is first and foremost. That we should desire and long and even work towards seeing our children, the children of, of our friends and our extended family, in the presence of Christ. Moreover, thinking of Jesus himself, do we have within us a reputation of godliness and loving kindness that children themselves would want to come to us and be around us, or that parents would want to bring their children to us, either to pray for them literally or simply to to give them advice on growing closer to Jesus. Now we have here not just a positive example in these parents in Christ, but notice those who didn't have that kind of reputation of wanting to bless children the parents and relatives were bringing their infants, verse 15, to him that he might touch them. We see that when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, what's clear in verse 15 is that the disciples were not keen on having children around at all. 
What's unclear is why they felt that way. I mean, we're not exactly told why. Now, some have seen them as trying to protect Jesus from the pressure of the crowds. He's got so much to do. Um, you know, it's like when the guest speaker is done talking at the conference and they, they whisk them away out the back door out to the car because they just know they, that they've been exerting themselves this conference and, and they think we want to protect his time and his energy so he's not just flocked with hours and hours of conversation afterwards. Maybe that's what it was. Others speculate that the disciples just didn't think children were worth Jesus' time. There were more important things to do, more important people to talk about. Still yet, some wonder that perhaps the disciples were jealous of the attention that the children were receiving. After all, they were the disciples, people who were following him in faith, seeking to learn from his ways. Why is he spending so much time with these kids? They're not good for anything. Now, frankly, any of those might be true. None of them might be true. It might be something else. But all of them are certainly temptations for us today, aren't they? All of them are temptations for us today that we would think more highly of ourselves than we ought and neglect the value and the presence of children either in our families or in our church. So this morning we need to examine our hearts and ask, who do we more closely resemble, these parents and Jesus or these disciples? Those who see the inherent, the inherent need to have children, even infants, blessed with Christ's presence, or the disciples who said, no, 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 we, we, we don't want any of this. We don't have time for this. And that evaluation cannot merely be based on what we say. Well, what we say or what we think, but it has to be on what we do. For, for the reality is we, we can say we believe all kinds of things, Right? We can tell people, well, I believe this, but the reality is if our life is not affected by that belief, we don't really believe it. I mean, I mean that's in anything. If, if, if I say, yeah, that, that, that chair will hold you, go ahead and have a seat. Well, you sit down first. No, there's no way I'm sitting in that chair. What does that mean? It means something's wrong with that chair. I mean, I can say, yeah, it looks okay, but, but until I say, boom, this feels great, then you, you, there, there's no way you know whether or not I really trust that chair. And it's the same with anything, and especially this. We can say, children are a blessing from the Lord. Prove it. Prove it by your actions. Not just with your words, but prove it by what you do. J.C. Ryle is surely right when he comments that the souls of young children are evidently precious in God's sight because here and elsewhere there is plain proof that Jesus cares for them no less than for grown-up people. And so should we. This is why we not only see the need to bless children with Christ's presence, we should, but we should also obey Christ's command to welcome children to Christ's kingdom. We need to welcome children to Christ's kingdom. The disciples wanted to keep children away. Think about what Luke says. He was rebuking the parents. If you rebuke somebody, what's going on? Sin. The, the disciples thought that what they were doing was sinful. It was wrong. So you can imagine them saying things like, you know, oh, what are you doing bringing these kids here? Come on, get out of here. Can't you see we got ministry going on? What are you doing? Why are you doing? Who do you think you are? What a contrast. Luke says, though the disciples rebuked them when they brought the children to Jesus, Jesus himself called them to him, saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Though the disciples rebuked the crowds, Jesus rebuked the disciples. And he wants to reverse their thinking about children and the preaching of the gospel. And notice he gives two commands. First, he says, let them come. It's a positive statement, an exhortation, do this, let them come. But then secondly, he says, do not hinder them. That's a negative, it's a prohibition, don't do this. 
So we have two commands here. Let them come and don't hinder them. In other words, open the gates that they might be welcome. Don't stop them from coming. And as Christ's disciples, as his, as his adopted siblings, as it were, by God, the children of God, the Spirit is seeking to conform us to the image of our older brother Jesus. That's what, it's a whole argument Paul makes in Romans 8. That God is seeking to conform us, to mold us into the pattern, the image of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's just a general image of holiness. I think that's in the specifics. I think that's in the details. That insofar as we are able, that we see Christ not just as our Savior, though certainly and primarily that, but we also see Him as our example, the pattern for the details of how we think and how we live. So if Jesus loves children and welcomes them, then we should as well. So practically speaking, what can you do, what can we do together to keep from hindering children? What can we do to welcome them to Christ? Now, even as I think about that, we could probably do a six-week class answering those two questions if we fully unpacked it, but I think most of us would be pretty hungry if we did that six hours right now. So we're not going to do that. But what I do want to do is think just in three broad categories, three broad categories that, again, can apply to us as individuals, us as individual families, or collectively together as a church body. Applications that touch on our attitudes as well as our actions. If we are to welcome children to the kingdom and not hinder them, we must first set an example for them. We must first set an example for them. A few years ago, Michael Weaver uh, wrote a, an article called Five Ways to Make Your Kids Hate Church. Okay? Five, kids, five ways to make your kids hate church. In other words, these are five practical things that you can do to set a bad example and turn your kids away from Christ. The point obviously was don't do those five things. Do the opposite. But the reason why he listed them that way is because, frankly, that's probably five things that a lot of parents do and a lot of church members do. So I'm not going to unpack them and read the explanation. I do want to read the list, okay? So if you, how do you make your kids hate church? How do you make them hate Jesus and not want anything to do with him? Here's five things you can do. Number one, make sure your faith is only something you live out in public. Number two, pray only in front of people. Number three, focus on your morals, not the gospel. Number four, give financially as long as it doesn't impede your needs. And number five, probably the one that the church today is most guilty of, make church community a priority as long as there is nothing else you want to do. Now, what do those five things have in common? Hypocrisy. All of those things are examples of our hypocritic lives as those who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so my point is, instead of living that way, Live as an example. Don't don't live a life of spiritual duplicity. Set a consistent example of faith and godliness. If you've got kids at home, do not think that they're not watching you, okay? They are watching you, whether you think that they are or not, whether they're in the other room with a television. they, They know what's going on. They know how you're living your life, and there's no fooling them. They can smell hypocrisy a mile away. So, so give them nothing to smell, okay? 
If I can extend that metaphor probably too far. Uh, Go hard after God. Show them what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Be humble and repent before your kids when they see you fail, especially with your relationship with them. And that's not just for parents. When I bring my kids into this church, for those that are members, you know what I want them to see? Consistent, godly examples of Christianity. I don't want them to see a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want them to see people who who only display their faith in public, who only pray in public, who focus only on morality and not the gospel, who only give financially when it doesn't impede their needs, when people only make a church a priority or community a priority when there's nothing else to do. I don't want them to see that. I want them to see a thick, robust God-glorifying church who loves Jesus Christ and wants more than anything to make much of them with their lives where nothing else is a priority in their life. Set an example for them. But secondly, strive to engage their minds and their hearts. Strive to engage their minds and their hearts. Strive to engage them with what? Simple, the Bible. The the, the truths of Scripture about who God is, who they are, how they should respond to Christ. That's a plan that God has had both in the Old Covenant and the New. So so, so in the New Covenant, for us, the, the church in Ephesians 6, Paul says that especially fathers, you have the weight of responsibility here. Men, step up and be what God wants you to be. Do not provoke children to anger but instead bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And if you want some practical examples of what that looks like, go back to Deuteronomy 6, where basically Moses told the same thing to Israel. You you need to teach your children to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, Jesus adds later. Okay, How do you do that? He says, talk about the things of God. Whether you're at home, whether you're eating, whether you're getting ready to lie down for your nap, whether you're walking down the road, talk about it all the time. So so how do we do this? How do we engage their minds and their hearts? Well, the simplest thing to do is just open up the Bible and read it with kids. Okay? A a few months ago, I'll give you a practical example. A few months ago, uh, uh, I think it was, must have been over the summer when, when Ellie was at daycare because it was just the three older kids and I. We sat down, we looked to 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul describes what love looks like and we just picked one verse and we read it. And we thought about, okay, so how, how do we see that in Jesus' life? He's got all those descriptors. How do we see that in Jesus' life? And then how do we, how do we see where, where I, dad, have not been loving like that towards Joshua, towards Rebecca, towards David? How has Joshua not been like that towards dad, towards Rebecca, towards David? We went all, all there, and then we confessed our sin to one another. I am sorry that I have not been patient with you on these occasions. Will, will you forgive me? And then we all prayed together and for one another that, that God would, would grip us by Christ, who was the perfect example of love, who was our Savior and, and, and allows forgiveness for our failure, but also gives us motivation to live the way that we should. Now, all of that, frankly, only took about 20 minutes. As we said, God, help us to be patient and kind and not arrogant or rude, not insisting on our own way, or irritable. That's probably a verse all of us need to pray for, right? It only took about 20 minutes, but it was an incredibly meaningful time for us. 
With younger kids like Elizabeth, we often just use a good Bible storybook that focuses not just on behavior, but also on the gospel, which produces good behavior. Other times, I follow the instructions of Deuteronomy 6, and I just listen to what my kids are talking about. What are they learning in school? What's going on in the, in this, the, the fiction books that they're reading? And I try to think about biblical parallels or examples or how I can tie that to something that God wants. Even if they say, hey, this character did this, this, and this. I say, really? That's interesting. Do you think in real, in real life that's the way we should act? Do you think that's the way God wants us to act? Yes or no? Or is that, is that something, can we see a parallel to what Jesus did? This guy uh, allowed himself to be killed so that way these other people could be freed? Doesn't that sound familiar? I, just whatever is going on. That's usually in the car while we're driving somewhere. Just happens naturally in the course of conversation. Those are just some examples. My point, though, is that if we're going to not hinder them from the kingdom, if we're going to welcome them to the kingdom, then we've got to go after them. We need to engage them on the level of their minds as well as their hearts. And we should be doing that at home as well as at church, in classrooms, in hallways, in community groups with our own kids and the kids of others. Finally, if we're going to welcome children to the kingdom and not hinder them, we must serve as an encouragement to their families. We must serve as an encouragement to their families. I think we've paused here and just had people stand up. And anyone who's ever had a child in the nursery or in a Sunday school class, I think that they would all consistently be able to tell you that was an encouragement to me as a parent. To know that you were caring for my child. That you were not only maybe just rocking them and feeding them a bottle in the nursery, but also telling them about Jesus in the classes. Conversely, I can tell you as a parent, I'll step aside from the pastor role for just a second and say as a parent, when, when it is a struggle to find people in the nursery or to teach kids classes, that's discouraging to me. That makes me feel unloved. That, that, that makes it very difficult to want to engage and, and sing songs about loving community and fellowship as God's people. Because I think, where is the example of the love? Where is the example of the community? Where is the encouragement? And, and, and so positively, back to pastor role now, I'll just say that there are some of you that, that excel in taking care of the kids, both inside the church and outside the church. I, I, I have, I, just in my mind, as I'm thinking about this, faces of people in this congregation who on numerous occasions have just, have just said, hey, you know, they hear that something's going on, busy with Melinda and I, and they just say, let, let me come and take your kids for you for, for the day. And then you know how encouraging that is, and I know that they're going to be well taken care of. It's not just be like, you know, ah, sit down and shut up. You know, I got stuff to do. Watch television. That's not how it's going to be at their house. And I know when I drop them off that that's not how it's going to be in the classroom and in the thing. That there is a loving concern in that. I, I am thankful for the commitment that some of you have here. But I also know there's some of you who frankly are great with kids and you can't be found anywhere near our nursery or kids' classes. And much like the disciples in this passage, I can't understand or at least put my finger on and say specifically, here's why I know you're not doing that. But if we're going to take Jesus' command seriously, let me just say, you better rethink your assumptions and your attitudes about your involvement with children. If it's not too good for Jesus, how can it be too good for you? Finally, I know there's others of you that are a part of this church and you feel completely unequipped to work with children. You don't have children of your own. You don't have children in your house. You've had no experience with them. And you just think, I'm not going to work in children's ministry. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I, I, I don't know what, what to do. And, and just by way of encouragement, let me say, just show up. Just, just be there 
and there'll be somebody else there who knows what they're doing. They'll show you what to do. I can remember when I was in seminary and, and was serving at a church that was pretty much split between really younger people and really older people. Okay, and by older I mean too old to pick up a baby. Okay, I mean we're talking old, old. Okay, uh, not disparaging them, just saying they were not going to be in the nursery. Okay, if you can't pick up a kid, you probably shouldn't be in the nursery. Okay, um, but so we had all these 22, 22, 23, 24 year old guys and girls don't have a clue, and they say, "Oh, well, um, if someone needs to do it, I'll do it," and they show up. And, and so I, as a deacon of that church, I, I would regularly rotate through the nursery as part of our duties, and I would see these 22-year-old guys and girls who had never, never been around babies before, and they're on the floor racing cars. They're sitting in chairs reading books. They're kissing boo-boos and making little kids feel better. And they went in there thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. But you know what they saw? Here is an opportunity to encourage families, to care for kids, to serve the church so whether or not I feel completely equipped to do this or not, I'm going to be a willing servant. You see, much like obeying Christ's great commission to make disciples, there's no special calling to welcome children into the kingdom. There's no special gifting that's needed to serve parents and families by loving their kids, by setting an example of godliness, by engaging them with sound doctrine through tiny board books and catchy songs. I mean, come on, how much better does it get for gospel assurance than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What are you teaching a kid with that song? You're teaching them, number one, that Jesus loves them. How did he love them? He died for them. And how do we know that? Because God has given us a trustworthy book that we don't ever have to doubt. I mean, that's good theology. That's theology that some adults struggle to think about. Why this emphasis on children? Why spend so much time thinking through how to not hinder, how to welcome them into the kingdom? Not only were children inherently important to Jesus, which we see in the text, but he tells us here that the basis for thinking clearly and serving joyfully the children around us is rooted in gospel realities itself. The more we are around children, the more we should instinctively better understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the last thing that we need to see. That as Jesus' disciples, we must imitate children. We must imitate children as Christ's disciples. Today, when we think about kids, there's two huge mistakes that our society often falls into, two ditches on either side of the road. The first ditch is to despise children. We think that kids are a hassle. They're a hindrance to our lifestyle, a freedom, and career. So people stop having kids. Or worse, they slaughter them through things like abortion. Our culture, in part, despises children. That's one big mistake, one big ditch that we fall into. On the other side, we are tempted and often often give in to idolizing our children. We, we, we wouldn't say this, but we literally worship them. Everything, everything we do revolves around our children. The jobs we take, the, the, the food that we cook, the plans that we have, children are at the center of everything. And that leads us to make terrible, terrible decisions about jobs, about money, about ministry, because our children are idols. They are given way too much and not disciplined near enough because we, because we, just, we, just, we just want them to be happy. Well, can I tell you something? If you're raising your kid the way that God says, there are going to be times they're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy with you. So if your kid is always happy with you, either, either, either God has given you an amazingly wonderful moral kid or you're doing something wrong, just flat out. Now, there's a lot of in between, between those two dishes, but those are two very common mistakes we see in our society, even in the church today. But first century Judaism really wasn't on either side there. They were in the middle. They loved their children, and they treated them better than many other cultures. Remember, the Romans had abortion. 
The Romans in Jesus' day, they aborted their babies. They had abandonment too. They would have a baby and say, you know, we don't want this baby. It's a girl. We wanted a boy. They just go leave it at the trash pile until it cries and dies of starvation from exposure to the elements. Children were often slaves. The Jews were nothing like that. They believe passages like Psalm 127. Children are a heritage for the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. But at the same time, children were also social nobodies. No one really cared what a child's opinion was. Kids were not to be given priority in homes. They had no social standing whatsoever. They were completely reliant on their parents for everything. Not just in the early years of life when physically that, that's just there. The, they were always needy and dependent upon them, even as they grew up. And it's in that context of need and dependence that Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For, because to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. Now, what is he saying here? Well, let's just be clear. He's not saying children are automatically saved or part of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm very sorry to uh, my Presbyterian friends, but often I will read this and see this is a proof text for infant baptism. Um, I can't find water in this text. As Spurgeon says, I might as well prove vaccination from this text as well as infant baptism, okay? I mean, I understand their train of thought, but um, I don't see it here. And if you look closely, I don't think you will either. Either Jesus doesn't say children belong to the kingdom. He says to such as these, to those who are like children, the kingdom belongs to those kinds of people. In other words, Jesus says that coming to God for salvation is like a child living before their earthly parents. They are needy. They are trusting. And so Jesus wants to be clear that anyone who thinks that they are spiritually sufficient will not be entering the kingdom of God. Do you understand that? If you think you are put together, if you have what God needs, if you meet his standards, you're not getting in. That's the wrong way to come. Anyone who comes like an adult, independent, hardworking, self-reliant, that person will not enter the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus says you've got to enter like a child. That is, when you come to God seeking to enter his kingdom, seeking to experience his salvation, that's what entering his kingdom means. You don't come with your handful of good works and say, look, look at all the things I've done. Surely this is going to get me in. Surely this is going to be the means by which I'm saved. No, you don't come with your spiritual resume of years of service and holy living. You come like a child. No clout. No standing. No importance. You come fully trusting and dependent upon God. You're looking, you're looking for grace and mercy, not a reward for your labors. I understand that this morning, friends, God is not looking for perfect people to save. If you think you're perfect, God can't, God can't save you. Because in order to save you, you must come to a place where you realize, I have nothing, nothing, nothing to merit salvation with God either in myself or what I have done. This is why Jesus says that he has come not looking for perfect people, but he is like a spiritual physician looking for those who are sick and who know it, who are crying out, help me, I need a doctor. I need someone to save me. I need someone to show me mercy. Not one standing there saying, I am so thankful that I am so good and I'm not like that dirt bag over there. I'm going to get in heaven for sure. We come like a little child. We come saying, all I can do is trust you. I don't have anything but need. That's the mark of a true disciple. That's why this passage is here, both with the passage before us, and we'll see next week that the passage after it. And here's why we don't need to bring anything, because God has secured all that we need in Christ. 
The Bible teaches a doctrine of imputation. When Christ was on the cross, God imputed, that is, he credited, he considered our sin to be Christ's sin. So he treated Christ the way we deserve to be treated with the fullness of his wrath being poured out upon us. But when we trust in him, then there is a double imputation. We have the righteousness, the perfect obedience of Jesus all of his life, considered, imputed, counted as if it is ours. And so our, our punishment has been meted out already for our sins. We can be forgiven. But more than that, we can be justified. We can be declared right with God, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness that is counted towards us. That is how we come to Christ. That is how we continue with Christ. Like helpless, trusting children, looking to God and God alone to provide what we need for salvation. Last Sunday, Melinda and I worshiped with the congregation at St. Andrew's Chapel in Orlando. And during that service, we sung a very famous hymn sung by Augustus Top Lady that expresses the very truth that Jesus is trying to convey here. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Right now, our youngest daughter, Elizabeth, is three, and she is in the phase where she will unexpectedly, routinely throw herself at Melinda and me. She has no concern whatsoever for safety or appropriateness or timing. Just, just three. So she could be, you know, laying in bed and she'll stand up and just dive. Or we'll be sitting on the couch and she'll stand up and she just dive. Or she comes around the corner, run as fast as she can and just leaps for us. Why does she do that? Because at that age, she has every confidence in the world that we're going to catch her. There is no thought in her mind that she's going to fall down. She's going to get hurt. She trusts us completely. And the life of a disciple of Christ is no different. From the first moments, first moments of belief when we enter the kingdom throughout our life until we lay down in death and go on to our reward in the very presence of God, we throw ourselves at him with simple childlike faith. We don't come hesitantly. We don't come with, with cushions of spiritual accomplishments belted around us like crash helmets and pillows thinking, well, I might get hurt. No, no, no. We throw all that aside. And we remember, we know, we believe that God has made the provision, the only provision that will make us right with him. The gift that he gives, the death and resurrection of Christ. So we trust him. We depend on him. We believe that he will save us and protect us and provide for us because in Christ, God is our father. And when we grasp that about the gospel for ourselves, that will free us up to do all kinds of things. Pursuing holiness will be a joy not a drudge where we think, I've got to be more holy so God will accept me. He's already accepted you. And so now enjoy, you just are striving to imitate your father. Like father, like son, mother, like daughter. We want to be God's children. More than that, though, we want to be around children who model for us that simple childlike trust that remind us, yes, this is how I should live. This is what it means to be humble and needy and dependent. So we don't worry about inconveniences and serving. No, we say Jesus, who is perfectly loved by the Father, who is perfectly righteous, who was the Savior of the world, who had so much to teach and to do, 
he still would tell the disciples, man, just be quiet. Don't stop the children from coming to me. Can't, can't you see that being around these children are a joy? Because they show us what the kingdom is like. They show us what the gospel is like, what it means to have God as our father. So we serve. Father, we are so thankful for your son. We're thankful to be called sons of you and him, to have him, as the Bible says, as our older brother. But Father, we know that only comes to those who put their faith in him, who continue with childlike trust and dependence to look to him and him alone as our savior and our king. So Father, we pray that we would have that intentionality, that we would, we would have that childlike faith from now until our faith is made sight and we pass from this life to the next and stand before your glorious throne forever. And Father, may that gospel reality, may the freedom we have in Christ, the forgiveness that we have in him, lead us to serve you in ways that before we did not think possible, perhaps before we even avoided and turned aside from. God, take everything that we have, our talents, our time, our resources, and make it yours because of the gospel that we've received, the gift that you have given to us in your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.